Welcome to episode 101 of the Search with Canada podcast recorded on Friday the 5th of March 2021. My name is Mark Williams-Cook and in this episode we're going to be talking about a whole bunch of stuff from SEM Rush's IPO to PageSpeed Insights using HTTP2. We'll be talking about rich snippets and quality signals and local overrides in dev tools for trying to improve your site speed. Before we kick off, I want to let you know this podcast is very kindly sponsored by the lovely people at Sitebulb. If you haven't heard of Sitebulb, it's a desktop-based SEO auditing tool that you can use on Windows and Mac. I've been really surprised by the amount of sometimes quite experienced SEOs that haven't tried it out yet. It's absolutely fantastic. They've got a deal with Search with Canada listeners, which means if you go to sitebulb.com forward slash SWC, you can actually get an extended 60-day trial of their software. There's no credit card or bank details or anything required for that, so you can try it, no hands tied. If you don't like it, you don't have to continue using it but it's absolutely fantastic. I've used it for many years, so I was delighted when they wanted to sponsor this podcast because it's something I absolutely don't mind talking about. And I normally just cover one feature, one thing Sitebulb does that's helped me. And I haven't got stuck so far yet because every week it's helped me out or I've kind of thought about something else that it's helped me do that I can talk about. And this week's no different. So one thing that I got helped with this week with Sitebulb was I had someone actually who wasn't a client um, ask me about getting errors in Search Console for their site being not mobile friendly but when they were actually loading the site on their phone they could see hey everything looked fine and one of the things Sitebulb really helpfully does is it will give you feedback if things like CSS, JavaScript aren't accessible to crawlers and this was actually the the reason why this person was having this issue which was that Google couldn't actually access some of their CSS and JavaScript so when they went into Google Search Console and did a fetch and render of the page it looked unstyled which meant a lot of the links were all crammed together which is why Google thought the page wasn't mobile friendly or at least it certainly was to Google and I didn't kind of even bother because I didn't have access to their Search Console I didn't have to do any of that they said they had an issue I kept on going with my day just stuck it in Sitebulb and then loaded up the hints and it was pretty obvious to me what was going on there so absolutely fantastic bit of software does whole bucket loads of stuff that will help you with your SEO give it a go sitebulb.com forward slash SWC SEM Rush, the SEO tool that probably most of you working in SEO will know, use, or at least have heard of, has filed to go public. And while there probably isn't anything particularly actionable for us to do as SEOs about this news, I think it is really interesting because SEO tool companies don't usually make it to this stage. 
I actually found out about this through a series of tweets from Dan Barker, and I'll link to his tweet in the show notes, which you can get at search.withcanda.co.uk. But he's posted some screenshots uh, and highlighted some numbers which I thought were really interesting, which I'll just go through very quickly now out of interest. So SEMrush spent $54 million on marketing last year, for a revenue of 125 million. And from that, they made a gross profit of $95 million and a net actually loss of $7 million, which isn't too surprising, um, kind of pushing through the growth that they're seeing. So they state they have 67,000 customers. And if you divide the 125 million profit by 67,000, it would mean an average of $155 per customer per month spend. And that, of course, that number, Dan, gives the caveat that this ignores the growth uh, over the year. So they, he just did the total revenue divided by the number of customers. So that's probably not quite right, but it gives you a, a, a nice estimate. The timeline states they passed 50,000 customers in 2019, meaning roughly 10 to 15,000 customers added across 2020. The sales and marketing cost increased 31% last year with an extra $5 million in staff costs and 7.5 million in additional online advertising costs. The SEMrush online learning program had 300,000 signups and 130,000 completions. And the marketing and sales team alone is 308 people and there's 980 staff in total, meaning almost one third are in sales and marketing. I thought there were some really interesting numbers to discuss. And I was listening to Judith Lewis uh, yesterday on Clubhouse. She was talking about um, some SEO stuff, of course. And she raised one really interesting point which was at the moment, SEM Rush is a pay monthly tool. So you can subscribe to SEM Rush and pretty much cancel your monthly service with them at any time. And she raised the really insightful kind of point that if the company goes public and they need to start providing shareholders with more information and forecasts, that it's likely they might move to a model similar to other tools where you have to buy a year of service and you then at certain points during the year have exit points. Now, I know I used to be a search metrics customer and this is exactly what they did. You'd sign up for a year and you would have a window to to cancel at the end near the end of that year. And if you miss that, that's kind of tough luck. You're in for another year, but that gives them the solidity they need to to make those kind of forecasts that they need to do. I did ask SEMrush directly if they have any plans to change their subscription model from monthly to maybe a longer term or a yearly um, subscription model, but they haven't replied to that. So it's just something to bear in mind and I thought it was pretty interesting news to discuss in the SEO world.
I've got good news for you, which is that your page speed score is probably going to be going up around now. And that's due to some news that was published on the Google Developers site for PageSpeed Insights. Again, I'll link to it in the show notes at search.withcanda.co.uk. And this is essentially that the PageSpeed Insights tool is going to start using HTTP2 to make requests. So if your server supports this, it's likely you're going to see an improvement. So from March 3rd, 2021, this is the announcement from Google, PageSpeed Insights uses HTTP2 to make network requests if the server supports it. Previously, all requests were made with HTTP 1.1 due to constraints in connectivity infrastructure. With this improvement, you can expect more similarity between Lighthouse results from PageSpeed Insights and from Lighthouse CLI and DevTools, that's command line interface, which have always made requests with HTTP2. However, it's important to keep in mind that different environments, hardware and connectivity, will influence measurement, so cross-environment consistency is near impossible. With this change, network connections are often established quicker. Given your requests are served in HTTP2, you can likely expect metrics and the performance score to improve. In general, performance scores across all PageSpeed Insights runs went up by a few points. If your page does not support HTTP2, the report will now show an audit that estimates performance improvement if the page were to support HTTP2. So a little bit of interesting news. Um, it's always easy to miss these small announcements and then maybe um, leave kind of leave you scratching your head if if you see a change and you're not sure why it's come so um as as it said if you've been running the tools kind of via cli or via your browser it doesn't make much of a difference anyway but if you are using the PageSpeed insights tool you will likely see a few points increase I have a very short piece of what I think is very interesting kind of intrigue to share with you around rich snippets. I picked this up from Search Engine Roundtable. It actually came from a hangout with John Mueller where someone was asking questions around rich snippets. Specifically, they were asking why they weren't getting rich snippet results even though um, they were sure the technical implementation was correct. And I'm just going to quote here a part of John's reply to this and then talk about why I think that's important. So John said, and the, the last one is more of a general, usually site-wide signal that is about the quality of the site overall. Like, can we trust this website to provide something reasonable with structured data that we can show in the rich results? And usually what happens when everything from a technical point of view is set up correctly and we've had enough time to process it for indexing and it's still not shown, then that's usually a sign that our quality algorithms around the rich results in general are not 100% happy with your website. So there's a couple of interesting things here. Firstly, the, the, just the, the usage of the term site-wide signal so as you'll know, Google's been very, um, well, Google 
Um, Gary Ish particularly has said, you know, Google doesn't really have anything that correlates to a, a domain level, um, a domain level like trust score, if you like. And obviously domain level and site wide are two different things because you can have multiple sites on the same domain and across subdomains, etc. But it's interesting because we usually talk about signals and we usually talk about ranking on a page level. And I don't I don't think this is John being kind of sloppy with the language he uses. So it's interesting just that he's he's saying there are some site wide signals in play and that these can affect, you know, how how many of Google's features you're going to be eligible for. So I can't you know, I don't think anyone can give you any sort of specifics there apart from do the things that we know are best practice uh, around, you know, content da 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 etc but just from a technical seo point of view it's worth i think filing that away in your mind that okay we we can now fairly safely say that there is some kind of scoring going on at least site-wide if not domain-wide site-wide with google i'll leave it at that it's just something for you to think about and this is how we can build our knowledge with these little bits of information and just not run away with them and make lots of conclusions but just keep them there in the back of our mind when we're trying to diagnose issues We've already spoken about site speed in regard to the page speed insights earlier in this podcast. And what I want to cover now is something that I think is pretty exciting. I hadn't encountered it before. Maybe if you're more of a recent kind of developer, you already knew about this. But it's it's about testing site speed changes with local overrides and I hadn't come across local overrides before and I spend a lot of time doing SEO so if you haven't heard of it you are most definitely not alone I'm quite confident quite a few SEOs won't have heard of this I found this from a tweet from Dave Pierce uh sorry Dave I I think that's how to pronounce your surname um I don't think I've I've mangled it do let me know if I've got it wrong and he's written an article about how to use local overrides in Chrome DevTools. Again, as you can probably guess, it'll be in the show notes, search.withcanda.co.uk. But I just want to, I'm going to read a couple of snippets from the post to give you a taste for what it's about. So this is from Dave's post. Improving site speed can be complicated. It's surprisingly common to roll out a change that should lead to a performance improvement only to find that frustratingly things have gotten slower and actually I had this exact experience yesterday the other way around which was we removed some page speed modules from a site and it actually started scoring better so absolutely agree with Dave there that improving performance improving site speed can be really uh, complicated detail orientated work So he goes on and a lot of the time this is how site speed works. You have to approach it like you're running an experiment where you benchmark your baseline, make a change and then test to see if you've made an impact. But this approach can be slow, especially if you're having to ask developers to make these changes and then they have to find time in their schedule to implement them and then potentially roll them back. 
In situations like that, you have a slow feedback loop. It takes a long time between let's see if this works and finding out the results. A fast feedback loop. Chrome DevTools has a feature called local overrides that can drastically improve that feedback loop. Instead of having to wait for a developer to add your change, you can first try it out on your local machine to measure the potential impact. It works by saving a copy of the page you're working on or any other resource like JavaScript or CSS file, letting you edit that and then serving that file instead of the live version. Here's how I test whether site speed changes might work without having to push those changes live first. So then Dave goes through, uh, gives a really nice uh, tutorial with screenshots about how to set up local overrides, find your baseline. He gives a little script to test the largest contentful paint speed. So you're getting that directly in your Chrome console. So you have your site, you run this test locally three times to get an average of this LCP. You can then make your changes locally and then rerun these tests to see if you're getting any improvement. And then there, obviously it still may not be exactly the same when you deploy it live, but it does give you a much better chance. And as he says, you can iterate through this feedback loop a lot quicker. He's even given an example site um, in, in his tutorial where he's done this and you can see the improvement. So again, I'll link to this uh, tutorial in the show notes, really worth checking out. Have your dev team look at it as well. It might be something that you can do to just speed up, um, as, as Dave says, speed up this feedback loop and help you get these site improvements live a lot faster. It's not the first time that Shopify has come up on the podcast. We've discussed it before. It's really common. I get loads of questions about Shopify every month from clients, from just random people as well, asking about Shopify and SEO. Like many of the major kind of e-com platforms and major content management systems, it's definitely got better over the years for SEO. Shopify definitely still has its kind of foibles, its weak spots for SEO. As as far as I know, they still um, don't have the ability to natively edit the robots.txt. A lot of the templates that you'll get with Shopify as well will build a URL structure that means the individual product URL will also include the category or as Shopify call them, the collection in the URL which is fine until you start getting a single product in multiple collections. So for instance, say you were, you were selling furniture and you were trying to sell a specific wooden chair and it was in two collections. So you might have a collection called chairs and you might have a collection called kitchen, for instance. And if you listed that product in both categories, you would get a forward slash kitchen forward slash chair URL and a forward slash chairs forward slash whatever the, the chair URL was. 
And Shopify, the default behavior is normally just to apply a canonical tag. Obviously this kind of works, but it's not optimal because then you've got all these extra URLs that um, exist that need to be crawled. You've got the issue of if people link to non-canonical URLs that the canonical tag you're providing is only a hint. So it can get a little bit messy, right? And one thing that I saw this week come out that will potentially help with one of these foibles so if you have a Shopify store your ears should be pricking up is multi-store hreflang tags so hreflangs um, as as we hopefully all know are the tags that we can use to tell search engines like Google which version of a page is for which region and which language it's particularly helpful if you are serving multiple regions in the same language. So the most common example is if you are dealing, for instance, with pages in English, but you have different stores for the UK, for the US, for Australia, because all of those ideally will be showing products in different currencies. And actually, if you really are going for international approach, you know, doing it properly and localizing content, you should be using, for instance, the different spellings between English and American English and actually just rewriting the sales copy sometimes because while we share a language with the US, culturally we're quite different and sometimes different copy will have a, a completely different uh, impact between the UK and US. Now, all of that's fine. However, again, most Shopify stores will handle href lang tags using a canonical URL value. And this creates a problem because it means you have to have the exact same collections, products, pages, blogs, blog tags, and articles in each store and all with the same URL handle. Otherwise, the hreflang tags that are generated by Shopify will actually be created and point to non-existent pages. So this means as well, if one store doesn't contain all the same products, which can be quite possible for different shipping reason, reasons or licensing issues, for instance, it means, again, you're going to be creating um, tags that Google's going to try and call, crawl to non-existent pages. And when these hreflang tags start to break down, it's normally a bit of a domino situation. So to be valid, they need to be bi-directional as well. So even if a returning tag is, is correct, if the one going out is pointing somewhere else, then the whole thing becomes invalid. So there is a app, an app, I should say, on the Shopify app store now called Multistore hreflang tags, and it's by Digital Darts. It's $27 a month, um, so it's not super cheap, but if you are running multilingual stores over different countries, I would definitely look at it because this app fixes a whole load of problems. It works for all content types, collections, products, pages, blogs, blog tags, articles, and they're all matched. So these stores will have perfect uh, hreflang tags. You've got a 14 day free trial on that app as well. So you can kind of install it on your site and see if it works. Um, 
I haven't got any connection <laughs> to this app. Um, I'm obviously talking about it uh, quite a lot, but you know, I I actually again just kind of encountered this during my looking around the web. So I I haven't personally used this yet, but it does look like a very good solution for an issue I know has affected many people that are running Shopify stores. So check it out. I'll put a link again in the show notes at search.withcanda.co.uk. And that's everything for this episode. We've actually covered quite a few bits of small news. This episode normally will normally tackle two or three longer bits, but I just had kind of a lot of itty bitty bits that I thought were interesting and important for this episode. We're going to be back on Monday, the 15th of March. So listen again, tune in again, share the podcast if you enjoy it. Um, thanks for all the great feedback. I've had some um, some really nice feedback on the podcast recently. I do really appreciate that, especially during lockdown. It does sometimes feel a little bit lonely doing this when I'm not interviewing people. So it's nice to know that people are enjoying it, finding it interesting and finding it useful, which is what... Uh, I set out to do. So apart from that, hope you all have a lovely week. <laughs>